Welcome to the Academy Podcast, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. My name is Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and a Professor of Neuroscience and Neurology at the Kirk Gorian School of Medicine here at UNLV. Today, our guest is Dr. Charles St. Hill. Dr. St. Hill is a surgical oncologist. He's also the chair of the Department of Surgery at UNLV. We're going to talk today about the certainty of a cancer surgeon, the uncertainty of medical students in the operating room, and a little bit about the robotic future of cancer surgery. One of the things I think you'll notice is that Dr. St. Hill is an incredibly thoughtful individual in how he goes about surgery and how he teaches, how he mentors. I hope you find this as interesting as I did. Dr. Charles St. Hill, Randy, thank you for being here today. Uh, we're going to talk about a few different topics and, uh, and as always, just have a conversation. Uh, just for guests that are watching, you and I have known each other for years, um, and uh, it's been my pleasure to be a friend of yours for all this time. Uh, I'm excited because we get to talk about some things that we usually don't talk about, and that's yeah. really your work to get down into it. I'm happy to be here, too. I'm excited to, to talk a little bit and, and uh, kind of get the word out on, on some, I, I think, some misnomers we talked about, like regarding the medical school and students and how that all works. But um, a little bit about my specialty. So I am a surgical oncologist. I did a fellowship in surgical oncology and then a concurrent fellowship in hepatopancreatobiliary surgery. Everyone has to say that three times fast. I wanted fast. you to say it, so I wouldn't have to. <laughs> Everybody has to say that three times fast as part of the test, part of the school. Um, and, and basically that just means I do cancer surgery on patients with pancreas, bile duct, and liver um, malignancies or, or even benign problems uh, that come up quite a bit. And uh, it's an area of surgery. You know, in surgery they call that tiger country, a place that you shouldn't go. There's a whole saying on, you know, eat when you can, sleep when you can, go to the bathroom when you can, don't mess with the pancreas, but then a few other choice words are used for that, and my whole job is to mess with the pancreas, so. So let me just ask real quick, because mm-hmm. uh, I want to get into the other topics as well, the background, but why the, why the pancreas, why that area, why is it so interesting to you? So I think uh, some of that kind of ties into my my background in college. So I did, was an immunology major, and I worked in an immunology lab, and I worked in a biotech uh, in a lab for a few years before I went to medical school. And so I have this interest in research. I was doing research even in the summers when I was uh, when I was in high school at uh, UCSD. And so um, in cancer. You know, so much of it is tied in with immunology. Now you see all the immunotherapies that are coming out. And so that was all things that we dreamed about when I was in the lab. And now they're actually reality. So as I was a resident, all those things started coming coming uh, to fruition. So I really like the research aspect of cancer. Uh, the uh, surgeries are technically challenging um, because you have to not only account for the anatomy that should be there, but the cancer is going to make you do the surgery a little bit different in each case, depending on where it de- decides to invade or whatnot. And then the last thing is I just enjoyed the patients. You know, a lot of surgeons aren't known for, I guess, their bedside manner and aren't known for um, enjoying clinic. Um, because the typical thing is someone has a, an issue that you can fix surgically. They come see you once in the clinic. You do a workup, take them to surgery, see them once after, and if everything goes well, don't see them again. But in cancer, you really develop a long-term relationship with that patient. A lot of them I'm seeing every – I see them several times before we go to surgery. They may have uh, chemotherapy first uh, over a three- to nine-month period, and then we take them to surgery, and then I'm seeing them a few times after, and then every three months, every six months, uh, I tell them, I'll be seeing you for the rest of your life you know, however long or short that is. So those are the, <clears throat> those are the things I really enjoyed about, about uh, cancer surgery. And uh, I'm not sure exactly why I picked the pancreas as sort of my focus, but um, probably because it's a place that not a lot of people want to be. And I think when you decide to go into a specialty or when you decide to go into medicine, you kind of choose – you know, do you want to have long-term relationships or shorter relationships? Do you want to be the doctor's doctor? Do you want to be the, you know, like the radiologist 
where uh, the doctors call you for advice? Or do you want to be the person that calls the consults and kind of manages the overall picture of a patient? Or do you want to be the person who gets called? So the one that like, okay, we don't know what to do with this. This is a tumor we've never seen. Let's call that guy, you know. And you're that guy. So I guess I wanted to be that guy. Yeah. yeah. So what's the prevalence of, of cancer in the pancreas in the areas that you work? Mm, that's So I guess there's about 52,000 cases of pancreas cancer per year. Uh, 70, in, the, in the U.S.? In the U.S. Yeah. 75% of that is in the head of the pancreas, and then uh, the rest would be in the tail of the pancreas, you know, give or take. Uh, and the most common um, pathology would be pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And then there's some other more rare tumors, um, like um, it's rare to have metastatic disease, but you could also have uh, neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas, uh, or there's also some functional endocrine tumors, like uh, tumors that produce insulin or uh, other hormones that, that cause symptoms. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I want to talk more about the symptoms piece in a little bit uh, because how you diagnose this or how it is first recognized, I think, becomes really important um, and interesting. But let's go back to San Diego, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in eighth grade playing basketball, dunking <laughs> the basketball. You grew up in San Diego, right? Family originally from California? My family is originally from Barbados. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so both my parents are from Barbados. My dad... Um, actually got to the States on a track scholarship with four of his friends that, that were noticed running track at a, you know, track is a huge thing in the, in the West Indies. So uh, there was a guy who just happened to be on vacation, saw these guys run. And uh, my dad, from the time he was little, you know, his parents died when he was young. So his, his older siblings were taking care of him and, and his younger brother. And um, they, he always said he wanted to be a physician, and everyone kind of looked at him like, I mean, how can you go from here to, to doing something like that? And so this guy recognized them uh, running and said, hey, you know, would you run against the men's B team? And they said, sure. So he paid for their their uh, f- registration fee, and they beat the men's B team in the 4 by 100 Oh, wow. So they said, well, how about the A team? And they said, oh, we'll try it. So they got beat up by the A team. There's no way they were going to beat them. But he offered them all scholarships, and they became the four-by-one track team for uh, Philander Smith College in Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow. So he went from there to then medical school in uh, at UCSD. And so he was, uh, I think, he, he started in the first class they had any African-Americans uh, at UCSD for medical school. And so... Um, what year? Was this? He would have started in '69, yeah. And so uh, that's how that's how we got that's how we knew about San Diego. I was born about two weeks before he graduated, so there's pictures of me graduating from medical school twice. <laughs> <laughs> First time I was in a baby carriage, second time you know I was walking on my own power. So uh, so yeah, that was uh, that was how we got connected with San Diego. Did you ever ask him how, like, what was it that made him think he wanted to go into medicine? I think I think a lot of it surrounded his his uh, mother had um, gallbladder disease and died of a complication of that, as far as I know. And I think I think his dad passed away in a like a car accident or something like that. So I think that had something to do with it. It's it's interesting, you know the. Uh, your grandmother uh, passed away from gallbladder disease, mm-hmm. and you're sort of moving in that area to some extent. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, I fix. That's one of the things I do. Is someone yeah. has a a bad gallbladder, or even another surgeon has a problem taking it out, then I help them fix it. Yeah, yeah. yeah wow. Well, um, and so uh, you go to Berkeley for your mm-hmm. undergraduate. Uh, take us through that, and all the way through med school. So Berkeley. Uh, is the, I mean, I really loved, I think that's really the place I grew up, um, in sort of Berkeley and Oakland, California. Um, I, uh, interesting. I, w- I just recently went to my fraternity's hundred year, uh, anniversary. That's right. I remember you talking, that's, uh, yeah, yeah there's so many interesting things about that. I'd, 
Yeah, why don't you talk about that a little bit? So I'm in uh, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Um, I uh, pledged as a freshman at Berkeley, and some of some of my frat brothers were reminding me that when I got because it's unusual to pl- pledge as a freshman in an uh, African American uh, historically African American fraternity, and so everyone else I was with were juniors or at least sophomores and things like that. But from the time I got there, they were like, well, you know, what do you want to do? And this, that, and other. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon. And, you know, I kind of had a, like, clear idea of what I wanted to do from the beginning. And uh, and they were like, oh, okay, you want to be a surgeon? And they asked me about it, and I was like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And so uh, I kind of kept that kept that through the whole time. Um, but Berkeley was really challenging. I mean, it was super competitive. Um, you know, it was the kind of place where they would say, look to the left, look to the right. All the people you just looked at won't be there by the end of this class, and that's my job. And so they would set the curve low and and just kind of weed people out, uh, you know, really, really quickly. So, um, but, you know, I made it through with a lot of support from family, friends, fraternity brothers. And, uh, and then uh, after that, I actually didn't get into medical school the first time I applied. So I did molecular cell biology, immunology. Love being in the labs and things like that, but it was just a rough, rough course. And then in my it was my junior year, or the end of my sophomore year, uh, my dad passed away suddenly, and so I uh, stepped out for like part of a semester and then came back um, after that summer. Um, and it was just hard to cope with that and come back and come back strong. So it took me a little while to kind of get back into school and getting the grades I needed. So um, once I graduated, I um, worked at Berkeley High School for a little while. I worked at uh, a program where we essentially what we would call STEM now Mm -hmm. to try to get people of color and women into um, technical majors and and biology, medicine, things like that, engineering. So I ran that program for a year, and then I worked at a biotech company for a couple years, and then I worked at Cal um, in an immunology lab and with the intent of taking some courses at night and evenings and whenever I could to kind of bolster my application to reapply to medical school. So that everyone in the lab was super supportive. I had my own project. They helped me uh, apply. They helped, uh, they helped my PI actually write the, my letter of rec at the end of that. Um, so then I was, you know, I got into USC for medical school, and uh, off I went. So, uh, your dad must have been fairly young when he passed. He was forty-eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to me because it, you know, I, I think about this. We were talking about athletics before, and I think about the uh, athletes who don't have a, a straight path. It's some of them take that as a sign that well maybe they're not supposed to go from A to B, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and you think about you and your situation, your academic situation. You didn't have a straight path either. Mm-hmm. Was there any point where you thought maybe being a surgeon wasn't where you were going to go? No. So <laughs> that was one of the things yeah. that uh, my frat brothers were reminding me of. Is like you know other people say, well you know you did so good in these other classes. Or, you know, you do research, you know, maybe that's your thing. You could do a Ph.D. program, all that. I was like, I, I think I probably could do that. That's just not what I'm going to do. Like, yeah. I was always pretty singular in what I was going to do. Um, and then, you know, I considered other areas of medicine once I got there because mm-hmm. I wanted to keep an open mind and kind of enjoy everything I was learning. But I never, never wavered from wanting to do that. It's, a, you know, it's interesting. I, I – uh you know, one of the things we have in common is athletics, as we were talking about. That was really my focus when I was younger. And so for me to have a path from where I was to where I, I came, that was as windy a path as you could possibly get. So it's really mm-hmm. interesting. You know, John Files was on the podcast not long ago, and he had the same level of conviction mm-hmm. that you do. And I wonder if there's, there's something about the surgeon that needs that level of conviction. I mean, something has to be wrong with you to like, want to <laughs> cut someone open and like put them back together. Yeah. I mean, that's not normal. So and do it with <laughs> conviction, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so um, they call it. They say seldom certain, but never in doubt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about. I, th- I think this is this is a conversation we had another time, but I think it fits with what you're talking about. So I asked you one time about the future of medicine. Like, what do you think the future of medicine is relative to cancer? And you said, well, we, we at the school, can't really even think about the future until we have a solid foundation, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, in, it's one thing I think about a lot as in my new role as the chairman of the department. Is Congratulations, that, by the way. Oh, thanks. It's Appreciate been it. a few months and seems like years probably at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's new and old at yeah. the same time, right? So, um, so I think that, um, you know, when you talk about some institutions that are, you know, cutting edge and they have research and all these things, that's all great. And that's, I think, the direction we're going. But you have to be able to get all the little things right first. You have to be able to get patients in and out. Um, you know, give them a level of coordination that is uh, is tough to achieve in in the valley here. One, of, I mean, one of the one of the big things that I think is the is the future, but also the right now in medicine is, um, you know, because of the way medicine is structured in Las Vegas, people will have to go to three and four different practices to get their cancer care, um, and. It's not to knock anybody because there's a lot of, you know, people say a lot of things about cancer care in Las Vegas. And if you're able to navigate the system, you can get really good care because there's really well-trained people, you know, as as good as anywhere else you would go. Um, you know, we have people trained at, you know, people in our practice trained at Stanford, USC. Um, we had someone that was trained at Harvard, you know, all, all these different places. Um, and... Uh, I have to throw in a plug for University of Louisville because that's where I train. You know, I love that place. But, um, but um, you know, when you have to go, when you have to, when as the patient, when you have to navigate, okay, I have to go to this radiology place to get this scan, and then I have to go to this medical oncologist, and then I have to go to radiation oncologist, then I have to coordinate with the surgeon, and we have to start chemo here and stop it there and then get the surgery done after this many weeks and there's so many different areas where things can fall through because the individual organization um, doesn't doesn't know what the plan is necessarily when you call the person that picks up the phone. So they don't know that it's necessarily urgent for you to get your stuff done yesterday. Uh, and so we really need to build a, a network of, uh, of practitioners and have a way of navigating people through the system that can get them all those things in sequence and on time. And I think if we can do that, then that will make the biggest uh, impact on cancer care here right now. Yeah, it's interesting because if, you know, the unfortunate part is oftentimes those different entities aren't coordinated with each other. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you know, you said if you can navigate the system, Right, but that's a pretty big if. Yeah, and y- you think about that in a best case scenario, then you start throwing things like language into the barrier and a whole host of other things that could de- derail that. Um, mm-hmm. Our friend that just was retiring, and they were they were talking about navigating the the Medicare system. Oh, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. yeah. These are intelligent, well-educated people who, you know, are successful, have been successful in their lives, and they have no, they're just throwing up their hands at it. Yeah. Yeah. But throw in that, uh, you know, there's all these, we talk about social determinants of health. So let's say it's hard for you, let's say you have to take a bus to get from one place to the next. So it seems reasonable to have an appointment with me at uh, 10 a.m. and then have an appointment at 3 p.m. with your medical oncologist. And this is going to determine your treatment course and, you know, when you're going to be able to start chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to catch a bus. Mm -hmm. So now there's no way you can get from one side of town to the next on time in that that system. And so then you miss your appointment. So now you're kind of labeled as, well, they didn't show up for their appointment, et cetera, et cetera. And now you have to reschedule and all these things. So those are kind of the areas where, you know, uh, hopefully the school can be a conduit to have to bring some of these things all to one place so that you can have one stop shopping eventually. 
But in the meantime, uh, hopefully we can uh, create a navigation program that even though we're dealing with different practices, we can kind of help people literally navigate that system. So that's, that's one of the things we're working on. You know, I, I heard this the other day. You know, we oftentimes look at life, most people look at life in a very me-centric way, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, that second appointment that you're talking about, the person didn't show up, and, and the uh, physician may say they, they flaked on my appointment, right? Mm-hmm. Not knowing maybe that they, there was a bus issue or that there was a family emergency or those kinds of, or it had nothing to do with the appointment, right? And, and so we tend to label that person or, or the person, you know, that cuts us off in traffic. We're like, what a jerk, right? Well, that person to get to may, that appointment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just don't know. Yeah. And then sometimes patients are just, I mean, they're grateful for the care mm-hmm. and they don't feel empowered to, to call and say like, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it for this reason. They just kind of feel bad and then, you know, it, it piles on, on top of each other. So. I, so it's been my observation, at least, that my dad's generation, for example, my dad's 96 years old, and uh, thankfully in great health and, and so forth, but um, he, his view of a conversation with a physician is very different than, say, somebody who's 20 years old or, or 30 years old now, right? In his view, it's not his right to ask questions, of physicians, and yet to really have, you know, we talk about a, a patient-physician relationship. To really have that relationship, you have to ask those questions. You have to be able to have conversations. And I, I think that, that some of our older population don't feel empowered to do that, just like you're saying. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about this? <clears throat> well, some, sometimes I think it's, it's generational. It's also cultural. Um, and... Uh, I, I think I really put this together when I was at uh, University of Louisville. The culture there is is much like what you're talking about. A patient would come in, and no matter what their education level or, or you know level of wealth is, they say, "Doc, you just tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it." And you say, "Well, I have options for you. You could do this, and it's equivalent to doing this." But so it's really your choice. And they go, "You're the doctor." I'm the patient. So you tell me what I need to do, and I'm going to do that. And in medical school, we kind of teach, you know, that people have autonomy. So you give them equivalent options, and then you let them choose based on their background and and what they feel is best for their uh, life and their care and and what they want to do. And these folks are not going to, to do that directly. But what I learned to do at that point was to say, well, then let me ask you a couple questions. So, for instance, um, a woman with breast cancer came in and said, uh, you know, you just tell me what I want to do, what I need to do. And I said, well, you could have a mastectomy uh, with a sentinel node where we sample the node to see if cancer spread there. Or you could have uh, a partial mastectomy, which would be breast conserving therapy. So we'd keep the contour of your breast. We remove just the tumor and some normal tissue around it. We still do the, the lymph node to find out if tumor spread there. And then we add radiation to make that equivalent to the mastectomy with the sentinel node. And they see that's all good and fine, Doc, but you're the expert, so you just sign me up for whichever one I need to do, and I'm good to go. And they're ready to walk out the door. And you're like, wait, 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 you have to tell me. So, so anyway, so I just started asking some questions. So is, is uh, keeping your breast very important to you? And some people say, well, yeah, if I could keep it, I'd, I'd, I'd like to keep it. Now, they won't tell you the answer, but they'll tell you right. the answer to that. Or they'll say, you know what, I don't want to have to ever think about this again. You know, just take these things off, I'm, that's it. Or someone else may say, you know, I kind of always wanted to have my breast done, so if you take both of them off, can they reconstruct them? Like, yeah, you know, I can actually have a person who does that, so I can uh, set you up to, to, with an appointment to see them. So you have to approach things a little differently, but you can still respect their autonomy and, uh, and get them the – the best option for them. It's just the way you approach it may be a little different. Yeah, it's, a, it's uh, you know, I could see that same thing being used in a lot of areas of life, right, in, mm-hmm. in relationships with your kids and, <laughs> and other things. So it's interesting because from a patient's perspective, so 
forget about you asking the questions in the in the very beginning scenario. You know, you say here these are your options, and they say, well, you're you know you're the expert. You tell me what to do. They may be thinking, well, why won't they tell me? Like they don't want to take responsibility for this. And you know what's in each person's head. They may mm-hmm. be missing each other when both of them want the best outcome. Right. They just don't know how to communicate about it. Yeah, so the, the second thing they would say when I'd ask them about that option is they would say, well, well, what would you do for your mother? Yeah. You know, and I always tell people I wouldn't treat you any different than my family, but um, I would ask them the same. I would give them the same options. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I really like the question idea because that helps them to think about it. I mean, I, I can imagine that, that, you know, someone walks in, they have breast cancer, they're in a vulnerable state, you know, psychologically, they, they don't really know what to do. And, and this is a huge decision, obviously. And you're helping them by guiding them down a path of, you know, questions that if everything was fine, maybe they would think of themselves, but everything's mm-hmm. not fine. Mm-hmm. And um, are, are, are physicians and physicians-to-be are they taught this, or is this something you figured out on your own, or how does that work? Um, I think that it is definitely something that is talked about, but if you if you kind of take the course at face value, it would be, well, you have to give people their options, and you have to let them choose. And I think there's a transition between the first two years of medical school and the last two years where you start to pick up those nuances. So students kind of come in, uh, we call it the clerkship years. So there's their third and fourth years are more clinical where the first two years are more uh, in the classroom with some clinical experiences. And they come in and you ask them that question and they just kind of like eyes get big and they go, well, I don't know. Cause they've learned that both of those things are equivalent. And I was like, well, they want you to choose. So which one do you do? And it's kind of a trick question because you say you don't, you don't actually make the decision for them. You just walk them through, mm-hmm. and, then, um, and then they'll tell you the answer even if they're not telling you the answer. It's, you know, uh, one of the projects that you and I are working on is, is a feedback project, right? This new feedback system that we use that, you know, very, very simple in concept, great science behind it, um, incredibly uh, valuable, good, better how. Um, it seems like this would be a really great example of where you could use that feedback system because the, the trainees are going to stumble, right? Mm-hmm. And if they start moving in a good direction, you can talk about the positives of that and help them, you know, essentially like you're helping the patients, help them move in the right direction and, and really feel the value of walking with the patient instead of it being kind of a, you know, conflictual relationship. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you, uh, you ask them, you know, what went well about that interaction. And then and the first time they can't really come up with anything. Yeah. And then they start saying, well, I guess, you know, I had a good rapport with them in the end and, or, you know, in the beginning and, and, uh, and then you just walk them through the whole process and pretty soon they're able to kind of self critique, um, what they're doing and, and, uh, how they could improve, and then you can start talking about the different techniques you would use to, to help, that, um, help that interaction be better. Because a lot of it is, uh, is, is learned. You know, you, people talk about, oh, well, you have good bedside manner or bad bedside manner. I went to a talk recently at the Western Surgical, and um, uh, a woman was there and talked about uh, empathy. And so there's sympathy, which is different from empathy. And there's, um, there's uh, also what we call clinical empathy, which is a little bit different. You know, if you're there crying with the patient, you know, not, I mean, everyone who does surgery and has patients is going to cry at some point because they're going to lose somebody that you didn't expect or there's going to be a bad outcome that you didn't want to happen, obviously. And so that's just kind of the reality of the things that we do. But you, you can't um, lose your judgment because you get so wrapped up into what's going on with the patients. But you can show them that you care about what you're doing and that the decisions mean something to you too. Because, you know, we go do surgery almost every day. 
but they don't have surgery every day. Like for them, that's the biggest thing in their life to that point a lot of times. And so you need to be able to have a balance between letting people know you care, you really do care about what's going on and, and what happens to them, but you're still going to be able to have your head on straight and make good decisions when they can't make the decision. It's, are you familiar with Brene Brown? Do you know this name? Mm-hmm. She does a really fantastic video on empathy versus sympathy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, when we teach communication skills, that's one of the things that we talk about um, in cooperative communication. Think from the, an empathetic perspective as well. Uh, and the other piece of this that I think is really interesting is the statistic that as you look at empathy scores for uh, for trainees, so students as they go through the four years of medical school, how empathy decreases. Mm-hmm. And, and originally people thought that was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not so much a decrease as a shift from from what sort of you know normally is thought about as empathy to this clinical empathy, right? They, they get to a point where they can detach enough to, to look in a subjective way at the best decisions, but not so much that they're they don't care, right? Mm-hmm. That's a f- pretty fine line and, and, yeah. and nuanced yeah. uh, learning that people have to go through. Yeah, and, But I do think there's still room to teach how to, um, how to show clinical empathy and how to, um, yeah, how to, how to show clinical empathy so that the patient really understands that you care about it. Because some of those people who seem kind of cold and de- detached or using that as a, a kind of a coping mechanism mm-hmm. or as a safety net for themselves so they don't get overwhelmed by all the things they have to do. You know, like if, if uh, you're working with a patient and something bad happens, you still have to go and take care of 10 more patients after that. And so you have to have a way of dealing with that. It's, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's the medicine piece of medicine, mm-hmm. but then there's a human piece of it as well both for the patient and the physician mm-hmm. the human piece and and in a way that's a harder thing to teach right how mm-hmm. to how to be at the that proper balance of empathetic enough the clinical empathy but not so much right mm-hmm. and and most people probably miss that fine line on either side of it um mm-hmm. I don't know that we do a good enough job in medi- formally in medical schools teaching those types of skills. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's definitely room for that. And what, I mean, I was reminded of this at this talk. You know, the, the, the speaker said, um, you know, they always – that someone mentioned to them like, hey, you know, I remember you being in the room when I went to sleep. And so she said, you know, that's – it's only a few minutes from the time – they're already on the table to the, the anesthesiologist puts them to sleep uh, and induces anesthesia. But it really, I mean, that's something that they will remember, and it's and it's a time where they get, you know, really anxious, sometimes very afraid, and having, and you're usually the only person they recognize in the room as a surgeon because you're the only person they would have really met, uh, you know, ahead of time. And so just spending those couple minutes makes a huge difference. Yeah. And that's something that, I had done at one point and probably, you know, kind of lost at some point. But I do remember even just last week doing that, and the patient did comment on that. It's like, oh, you know, I remember I felt so much better when I saw you there. Um, And sometimes it's just being present like that that can make a world of difference to the patient. I had a procedure at one point, and the, the person who was prepping me for the procedure I don't know how we got on the subject, but we got on the subject of pizza, which, of course, you know, <laughs> I was very excited about. I forgot about the procedure. Like, I forgot that I was going through this process mm-hmm. because of that. And and I know from a physiological perspective, you know, I relaxed. I didn't have the level of, of stress and stress hormones that were associated with it. And, and then we know, you know, the downstream uh, aspect, positive aspect of that you know, the likelihood that I'm going to have a positive outcome if I enter it in a more positive state is much greater, right? Mm-hmm. It's remarkable how those kinds of things can, can make a difference. Do you know of, like, you know, I know a bit about the physiological side of it, the psychological side of it, mm-hmm. uh, and can, can guess at how it impacts, but do you know of any research that's looked at the, the, the immediate pre-op 
uh, environment and attitude versus the successful outcome? I know people talk about it and, and even, I mean, especially in cancer, you could see it in people where they, you know, if they have something to live for, it could be, you know, they could say, oh, doc, I know my prognosis is bad. I only have a few more months, you know, according to the numbers. But if you could just get me to my grandkids' graduation in May, yeah, um, they may die in June, you know, but they'll get to what they need to get to. It's remarkable, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah. it's, it's inexplainable, but you could see it, especially in cancer care, you see it all the time where people will kind of just tell you, like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to fight. You know, I'm not going to let this get me down. And they fight and they fight. And at some point they say, you know, I've, I've had enough. And, you know, they're literally done at that point. Yeah, I mean, you hear these stories all the time about somebody will say, well, they waited for me to come back before they passed away or they waited for me to leave and then they passed away. We're talking about cancer, right, and, and, and surgery, two things that in some regard are very straightforward. As I mean, from the outside perspective, very mm-hmm. straightforward as far as medicine. Mm-hmm. Granted, the work that you do in cancer, like you said, it's different every time. But now we're talking about these things that really aren't medicine per se, mm-hmm. but they have a significant impact on on the patient, the patient's well-being, the patient's mindset, uh, the 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 feel of being taken care of like i i've got to imagine that a patient who sees you there before and after feels more taken care of than a patient who doesn't see you before or after just one of those times and we're talking about a couple minutes one way or the other Mm -hmm. the actual surgical outcome may be the same but the feeling of being taken care of might be very very different different. Yeah. yeah yeah and again one of these things that uh, you know, well, I don't know that we, and I'm, I'm meaning we globally, people that are in medical education, that they necessarily teach because there's so many other things that, that seem to have a higher priority over. And, and maybe they do, right? Maybe this is sort of finishing school in mm-hmm. medicine. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's one of the things we always tell the, the a medical student is always meet the patient before the, the procedure, ask them permission to participate. Uh, and then, you know, make sure you know their medical history, make sure you know the procedure you're supposed to do and, um, and why we're there. And then uh, stay with them and follow them out to the recovery room. Make sure they have a good set of vitals when they're done. And, and that kind of gives you that learned uh, behavior of always doing that every single case, every single time. Uh, and when they first hear that, they may just see, well, they're just trying to make me you know, do these, what we call it scut work, right? Like things that just have to be done, yeah. but they don't really mean much. Uh, and later on, they'll realize that there is some meaning to it, but you just have to do it to, to get there. Just like in sports, right? Where no one likes running hills. Nobody. <laughs> but if you want to be a sprinter, you got to run some hills. It's interesting too, because in that situation, in, in the hill situation, you learn to l- love running hills, even though you hate it. <laughs> right yeah well because you love the outcome right that's yeah. exactly right you yeah. love the outcome and yeah. and i think as soon as people can start attaching the outcome to the behavior mm-hmm. then they'll start doing the behavior and that that's part of the problem right that in the beginning you may not be able to attach the outcome to the behavior mm-hmm. um it, having faith in the process i think becomes really important and, and sometimes mm-hmm. you have to mandate that process yeah. until they start seeing it yeah. You know, seeing the positive outcome. I think in this, the current generation, you know, people say a lot of things, oh, millennials, X, Y, and Z. But I think one of the things that they need more of is for you to start connecting the dots for them a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have you do this for this reason. And then they say, okay, I could see that. Whereas for us, they would just say, check on the patient and they'd walk away and you just do it and you'd kind of figure it out later. Um, these folks now don't connect to that. I'll tell you in, in, you know, some of the coaching work that I do, mm-hmm. I, I actually go need to go one step further and say, this is what it's going to feel like. This is what's going to happen. This is, you know, and, and 
I don't say it because just because you know I know that's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, I've seen it happen that way. But I say it partly because that gives them that little bit of behavior to outcome mm-hmm. that they may not recognize otherwise, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they start believing in the process. Yeah, you know, like you're going to run this hill, like to use that example, and it's going to suck, and you're going to feel like you, you know, you're slow, and you, but then. Next week when you run and track, here's what's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I think you're right. Connecting those dots, it, it, this is a whole another conversation that we probably won't get into. <laughs> what's the difference between the way that, that folks think now, generations, younger generations think now versus how they thought before? Well, I think the, the main thing is it's not a good or bad issue because a lot of people, yeah. it's just the generations are different, and so you need to figure out – how to connect with people that are in a different, have a different frame of reference. So they are uh, much more perceptive in certain areas. They have, um, you know, they can solve problems in ways that we couldn't even imagine because of their their uh, connection to technology and, and, you know, living in a world that always had the Internet. Um, and so there's a lot of advantages to the way they think compared to what we think. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I would be doing the same thing a thousand times and they'll be like, I wrote an algorithm for that. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, problem yeah. is fixed doc. So, <laughs> so I think, uh, so I think we have to not look at it like, Oh, well they didn't do it the way we did and blah, 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 blah. But, but, um, but find a way to connect and, and take, take advantage of the things that they're better at than we are. Um, but, but then allow them to see, the experience that we have and so that they could take advantage of that too. I think that's the thing. I mean, I, and I agree with you, by the way, I don't think it's easy to say, well, this generation sucks, right? It's because it's not our generation, right? And you can look both (laughs) ways and say Mm -hmm. the same thing. And everybody's done that through time. But the truth is that each of those generations have strengths and weaknesses. If you can both capitalize on the strengths and then, and then look both directions to create additional strengths, mm-hmm. um, then everybody wins, right? There's a, I'm sure you've heard the saying, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so, mm-hmm. right? So th- what, they, what they do, what we do, and so forth, it's not good or bad. It's exactly like you're saying. It, it could be either, depending mm-hmm. on how it's viewed and how it's used as well. I'm amazed that, you know, we both have kids and how our kids, (laughs) how they think about things and how quickly, how quickly they can find information, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, It's a a game changer in a very positive way if you use it. I know people are going to get mad about me saying this, but if you use it just to, you know, flip through TikTok, maybe it's not such a great thing Mm -hmm. unless you're actually learning something from it. Yeah. but, yeah, I mean, I, I think any situation, there's some advantages to it if we let there be. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of tapping into it. So I have seen, uh, just like you said, over, uh, you know, decades of working with different people in, in sort of a coaching performance optimization way, I have seen a change in how much people will go out and get the information themselves versus how much they want the information given to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it and you know it's I think it's on us as educators to style flex to the audience mm-hmm. as opposed to requiring them to flex to us. Yeah, right. You know, we've talked a lot about students, uh, trainees, right? So we're talking about students, residents, fellows, and so forth. Someone who's still in the training process all the mm-hmm. way through. You know, we, we have, we're at a medical school, and so part of the job of our physicians are, are having those individuals shadow or actually work with us, in your case, in a surgical theater. So I can imagine, and you've probably heard this, uh, patients who are saying, I don't want a student working on me, mm-hmm. right? So can you talk a little bit about that, like what's your thought about that and what you would say to that patient? Yeah, so um, I think... Maybe a couple examples would be helpful. Um, so a, a medical student will be with me, and we'll be um, uh, closing an incision at the end. So they're there. We're talking to them about anatomy while we're working. It's me and a resident uh, working on the case at the same time. And 
at the end, uh, a common thing for a medical student to do is to help with the uh, incision closure. So they've practiced on these synthetic models. We've shown them how to tie knots. They've practiced on like chicken skin and uh, pig's feet at home and things like that. And, uh, and that's one of the things that's important for me. Like I'm crazy about my incisions because that's the only part that anyone gets to see. They don't get to see all the other fancy stuff I did inside. All they see is what the incision looks like at the end. So we have a special way of closing where the, the uh, suture stays on the inside. So all they see is like a thin line at the end. And so every single stitch is scrutinized. And if it's wrong, it gets pulled back we, and they start over or, or uh, I'll finish it if it doesn't look perfect. And, and usually what I'll say is, okay, go ahead and close. Um, you know, do it however you want. It just has to look perfect at the end. That's the only thing I ask. And they kind of look at me. I'm like, yeah, perfect. And so that's their first time getting to, you know, getting to do that on a live person. But they've practiced and they've done it a bunch of times outside of there. And it's all something that's very, you know, fixable and and uh, and, and easy to do at the end. So another example is when I was a fellow. So I had done four years of medical school, five years of general surgery. Uh, so I was a, you know, board-certified general surgeon. And I did two years of fellowship, um, and uh, I was at the during the last couple months of my fellowship, and I was with the boss, right, the the chairman of surgery, mm-hmm. and the patient said, "Well, I don't want to have um, I don't want to have trainees working on me. You know, I just want you there." And they said, "Well, you know, the reality is, if you're in a in the operating room, you have to have an assistant for certain things. You just literally can't do the whole operation yourself." And so, uh, like, you may be able to expose something, but you need someone to cut in between where you're exposing. So you're telling them exactly what to do, but they have to be able to do it. So the surgical tech, there's surgical techs that, that assist, and they've been there for, you know, many years, but they may have completed a nine-month course, and that could be their first surgery. So, so he said, well, you know, a matter of fact, Dr. St. Hill is the most qualified assistant in the country at this point. In literally one month, he'll be doing this by himself, and you'll be going to him as an expert. But at that point, I had done about, you know, however many surgery I did as a medical student helping out where he's closing mm-hmm. the skin and, you know, holding retractors and things. 1,200 cases as a resident, uh, 400 major cases as a fellow, and that was the end. So, you know, that's like an expert-level person right. that's helping. Right. And so that's that's really what you're getting when you're in any and the person that's doing the operation and in charge of it is the one who teaches the teachers. So, uh, and, you know, and study after study shows that you know people get the best consistent care at a place where they do education, and by default they're being operated on by attendings, which would be the person like me who's completed all this and trainees, which would be residents and, and medical students. Well, I mean, it, and it also would make sense that the, the attending, so you in this case, would be paying even greater attention to what's going on because you've got somebody that you're training, that situation. Yeah, and, you know, the old adage of, like, see one, do one, teach one is, is just not reality anymore. You know, um, it, it used to be where, you, you know, you would, um, you know, we had a resident clinic when I was a, a resident. So the, they were my patients, and their expectation was that I was doing the operation and the attending would be available if there was a problem. Um, but now the level of supervision that's required and is customary is just totally different. You know, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be uh, very far away ever if, if not right at the bedside the whole time. So it's just a... It's just a different different paradigm, but it's something I think, you know, um, when you have a new medical school in a community, um, people, you know, don't know what that means. Like, what does it mean to be a medical student? What does it mean to, to go to a school? Uh, you know, are they going to be practicing on me? And you know, who is going to really be in charge? And they'll say, Doc, are you going to be there for this surgery? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So you said, you know, one of the most consistent findings is that uh, at – at medical education programs, you get the best service. Why is that? 
Well, I mean, we've done studies where we look at the National Cancer Database, and we've looked at the Mountain West region. And one of the one of the challenges we have here is that there are very few teaching institutions. If you look at the Mountain West compared to all the rest of the country, and um, there are very few cancer centers. There's only one NCI designated cancer center. Last time I checked, in the Mountain West, uh, and there's none in this state. And so, uh, but when we look. Especially when you look at complex cases, we look specifically at um, uh, at uh, liver cancer outcomes, uh, where you know there's not a lot of specialists that do that. They're usually concentrated at uh, teaching institutions um, or uh, cancer centers, for instance. There's even you know you can have a community cancer center. It doesn't have to be you know a, a medical school, but if it's a place that has um, sort of concentrated expertise in that area, uh, whether it's at a private, you know, hospital or, or not, um, patients tend to do better because they're more likely to do the surgery rather than not, and you're more likely to take on cases that are a little more advanced compared to not. So I think, um, I think it's really having the concentrated experience, and it goes all the way through. So when they look at... Um, liver cancer, especially pancreatic cancer and the Whipple procedure, which is the, the, mm-hmm. the major procedure for resecting that, you can have the same doctors doing it. So it's the same technique. They've done the same number of cases, but the outcomes are better if you're at a place that's, that's quote-unquote high volume. And it goes all the way down to the nursing level. So if you have dedicating nursing units that do these cases and recover the patients all the time, then the care is better. They're better able to salvage if there's a complication because they recognize it quicker. They know what to do. They know who to call, and uh, all the all the parts are sort of working together better. So, do you uh, do you see, you know, back to this idea of the future of this from a just from a mechanical perspective? Do you see a lot of robotics moving into the type of surgery that you do, or is it so unique in each case that that would be difficult? Oh, definitely. No, they're, um, you know, over and over again, we find that uh, as long as you can do the same surgery and get a negative margin, doing it with smaller and smaller incisions uh, decreases your chance of bleeding, it decreases the chance of having wound infections, and the outcomes in terms of how long you live are equivalent. So anytime you can decrease that morbidity uh, around the time of surgery, it's better. So... You know that we we so we talk about in in, uh, in uh, surgical oncology. You know, never let the size of the incision stop get between you and taking the cancer out. So if you need to do a big incision, you know, I'm all for that. But if you can do it with a small incision, have a equivalent, then it's much better for the patient. They get out to the hospital quicker. They get back to work sooner. They have less pain. You know, there's all these different factors that that we see over and over again. Uh, and so I think the robot to me, is just a tool. It's another way of doing minimally invasive surgery. And so it's something that I do quite a bit. And I think uh, as the tools evolve, uh, it'll become more and more common in, uh, in uh, cancer. So uh, can you talk just a little bit about the, the robot versus the human? Mm-hmm. And again, the humans involved, but the robot versus the human as far as some of the advantages on the robotic side. Mm-hmm. And then how rapidly do you think robots are going to be involved more and more in surgery? Well, I think, I think that's already occurred. If you look at a, a map of um, the, the robotic uh, system being placed at hospitals and you go back 10 years, you'd see like a few here and there. And uh, especially with the most recent updates to it, uh, if you look at a map over years of that, it looks like a plague. Yeah. You know, where you have like one and then you have 10 and then you have 100 and then you have, and almost every uh, institution in the country now has multiple um, systems. And, uh, and I think the uptake. I think, you know, there, there's some advantages of it compared to just laparoscopic surgery. So uh, there's no camera shake. So every time, you know, one of the things that the medical students do is they hold a camera. And, you know, it's not that their hand shakes any more than mine unless they're a little bit nervous. But you know, we can fix that by having them rested on something. Yeah. But um, 
when you're using the robot, there's no camera shake. It you move it so it looks exactly where you want to look, and um, and it's binocular. So when you do laparoscopic surgery, it's like you're in a you're in a 3D environment, but you're looking at a 2D image, and then you have to translate that back into 3D with your hands, and then you have long instruments. So there's some uh, a, a bigger learning curve to get through to make that work. If you just think about closing your eyes and touching your fingers, that's one thing. But if your fingers are now two feet long and they're inside somewhere where you can't see the tips, then it makes it more difficult. Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at a 2D uh, image of that. So the, the robotic camera has um, two lenses, and so then you get your perception, your depth perception back. Uh, there's some things you lose, though. So now you don't, you don't have the feel exactly, and you have to use visual cues to figure out how, how much tension you're pulling and how hard you're, uh, you're impacting the tissues, when it might tear. And so those are, that's part of the learning curve of the robot. Um, and so there's, there's really no difference if you look at a lot of studies comparing laparoscopic to robot because it's the same thing. It's just a different type of minimally invasive technique. But there are significant differences when you look at open compared to uh, robot or, or laparoscopy. One of my very first, in fact, my very first uh, uh, foray into medical education, medical training and so forth was laparoscopic surgery, mm-hmm. looking at uh, the challenge point and how if you train people with this particular method, the challenge point framework method, they'll learn three or four times faster and they're better under pressure than mm-hmm. if you train them in a, um, in a standard way. I'd actually kind of forgotten about it till you were just talking about lap- laparoscopic surgery. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, robots, uh, it's, it's just, it's the next tool, right? Mm-hmm. And, and again, back to, you know, it's neither good or bad. It depends on how it's being used. So, yeah. but yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I think that, uh, we've got a lot of cool things right on the horizon for the future of medicine. So. Yeah. I think if, if I had to predict kind of what's next, uh, I would say, um, imaging, Syncing imaging to um, to these robotic systems. So, for instance, I do a lot of work in the liver where you can't see through the liver. So we use an ultrasound. We'll look at the CAT scan that was done before. But there's a lot of um, sort of 3D modeling you have to do in your head to figure out where the tumor is and where you need to cut to get the tumor out with a negative margin. And I think the future will be... And some of this is happening now, but it's just not very widespread of superimposing the imaging onto the um, onto the uh, the live uh, feed that you're getting from the robot, so that you have a better roadmap of where to go. And then I think uh, artificial intelligence. So um, I think that's all part and parcel of that is uh, is having better um, better decision making based on. Um, not just your knowledge of how many thousands of cases you did, but a, uh, a sort of software-generated uh, experience of a billion cases. Can you d- just talk a little bit about the, the interaction between the artificial intelligence and the, uh, and the imaging, how those two would work together, like in this specific situation that you're talking about? Yeah, so if you have a tumor that's kind of deep in the liver, you look at the imaging ahead of time and you kind of figure out, well, this is the resection I need to do. And then you use landmarks on the outside of the liver to figure out where you need to cut the liver so you get the whole thing out. And then you also use live imaging with ultrasound during the case to figure out where are you gonna where are you gonna transect the liver so that you get the whole tumor out, and then you also have some normal tissue around it so you're not leaving anything behind. And um, and one of the things about experience is you're just more able to um, to translate that to your hands while you're operating. Whereas uh, early in your career or when you're uh, you know student or resident, it's hard to even know what the normal anatomy is supposed to be, and then what the tumor anatomy is going to look like, and where you should go to get the result you're looking for. So uh, if you could have the tumor so that you're looking at the at the outside of the liver, but you kind of see a 3D image of where the tumor is inside, it just makes it more straightforward to say, okay, if I cut down here, I'm not going to hit the tumor. Yeah. 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 
It's uh, the, these things are all fascinating to me, and uh, I'm I'm so hopeful for medicine because of the, these non-medical uh, areas that are entering the field, like AI and and imaging. Well, imaging is medical, but mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that we're able to be able to to use all of these tools, and it it makes me think back to one of the things that was said before about the generation that's growing up now in uh, in medicine, you know, something like imaging and artificial intelligence, it's just second nature to them. Yeah, they, they would just expect that that is yeah. like, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. yeah. That w- it wouldn't make any sense to right. do it any other way. Right. And so yeah. in a lot of ways, they're ahead of the curve. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So I want to talk about moments of joy. So this is something you and I have talked about. This is something that, you know, I, I think is a, a really cool exercise that we do at the beginning of every year as we're going through, you know, reinvesting in our values and looking at our goals and so forth. Um, moments of joy from your life, things that you remember, and they can't involve your kids. That's too easy. Okay? <laughs> things that you remember from your life that just that's a moment of joy. Okay. I think uh, two that pop out would be would be graduating from Berkeley. That was like a kind of a milestone. I felt like after I did that, I could do anything I wanted to. And then, uh, and then also medical school, kind of walking across the stage, seeing my mom there. Uh, that was a huge deal for me. You know, uh, I'm going to tell you one that that I've heard, in fact, you just talked about it today. Mm-hmm. You, when you talked about dunking a basketball when you were in eighth grade, mm-hmm. you said that with joy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I would, I mean, I don't know this for sure. It's your moment, <laughs> right? But I would say that that one would fit in there too, that feeling. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't the tallest kid. So to be able to get up there was, was a big deal. And, uh, and, you know, it's kind of bragging rights. Yeah. Yeah. So – uh, what is a connection among your moments of joy? And I know you have more than that, but what is a connection among all those moments? I think the main thing is just accomplishing something that so many people said you just can't do. Yeah. I think that's what it kind of comes down to. So I'll tell you, as I was listening to you along the way, you know, you talk about the difficulty with, uh, you know, at Berkeley, you talk about, the, uh, you know, several things along the way, including the very first thing that you said, you, you uh, work on the pancreas, you work in that area because it's different every time. Mm-hmm. That idea of having a challenge and achieving beyond that challenge, um, I would guess that if you start looking at your moments of joy and you list them more and more and more, most of them will have that in common. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece from what you just said was also something related to, to family and your connection with other people. And I think mm-hmm. that that's one of the things that I, you do very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, uh, you know, obviously you're confident in what you do, but you also have this, this wonderful uh, ability to be vulnerable and open to other people. And I would guess both of those contribute to your moments of joy. Yeah, I mean, I, I can think of a couple times when uh, – I've, I've had a few patients say this, like, Doc, you know, I just like the fact that you can laugh and you don't take yourself too seriously. I'm like, you know, you guys all have cancer. Like, everybody's dying. We can't be, you know, in the corner all the time crying, you know. And if and if a cancer patient that has one of the, you know, deadliest cancers that we know about uh, can have joy at the same time they're going through the process, then, you know, who am I to not have that, you know? And so you, you just have a different connection, uh, especially being a surgeon. For some reason, we have a different connection with patients, I think, than anybody else. Other, right. other people might argue, but they're, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Certain, right? you got to be certain. The, the, but it makes sense, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're actually cutting open people and going in their bodies. I mean, that connection, Wow. Like that's mm. it's pretty crazy to think about. I think the the uh, I've got lots of other things to talk to you about, but <laughs> but I think you just dropped the mic on the idea that if you if a cancer patient can find joy, 
mm-hmm. you know, so can we. Right? Yeah. And, and I applaud you for being able to recognize that. And thank you, by the way, for all that you do. Department Chair of Surgery, uh, the work that you do with training, with, you know, developing uh, new generations of physicians, uh, your, your own surgical work. Um, and thank you for being here. So oh, absolutely. it's a real pleasure. So thank you for listening. We're truly grateful that you spent the time with us. We'd love to have you as part of our regular community. So if you don't mind, please rate us on Spotify, join our YouTube channel, and give us your comments and questions. We'd love to use those for future episodes. Thank you.